Now this is that which thou shalt alter, offer upon the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. The one lamb thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at even. And with the one lamb a tenth deal of flour mingled with a fourth part of a hen of beaten oil, and the fourth part of a hen of wine for drink offering. And the other lamb thou shalt offer at even, and shalt do according to the meat offering of the, mor of the morning, and according to the meat offering, there, the drink offering thereof, for a sweet savor, an offering by, made by fire unto the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak there unto thee. And I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What is it that you include in your daily habits? Now, when you first hear this question, you might have trouble identifying anything as a daily habit. Oftentimes, I think this is because habits become so ingrained in our life that they don't register in our minds as activities or habits at all. After all, every day we eat, we dress, we wash, we put on shoes, we put on clothes, we go to work, we go to school, we comb our hair, we apply cosmetics, we take cosmetics off, we brush our teeth, we put on underarm deodorant, we put on cologne, we put on all sorts of things. We walk the dog, we check our email, we check our regular mail. All of these activities we often do by habit. We do so many things by habit that the things that we do habitually often fade out into our memory uh, that we actually do them. If, you were to, if I were to ask you to tell me everything you did yesterday, you probably said, well, maybe I, you, you, you only give me the highlights. You wouldn't start out and bore me with, I got up this morning and then I went to the bathroom and then I put my, you wouldn't give me a blow by bow, everything uh, that you did. But if you miss one of those kind of habits, uh, you feel something is off and something would be wrong in our day. Now we recognize that there ought to be also in our lives not only these physical habits, but spiritual habits. And that these spiritual habits ought to be as automatic, automatic and natural as the things that we do physically. And yet, I would guarantee, I would almost put money on the fact that if I were to ask you how automatic our spiritual habits are, I venture to say that we would all have to admit that it takes more efforts than our physical habits. We all struggle with maintaining spiritual habits. We have to think about it, whereas we don't have to think about all of the physical things that we do in a day. Now take eating, for example, as one of the things we do day by day. We pay more attention to the physical pain associated with lack of food than the spiritual pain of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Now, part of our problem is, quite frankly, spiritual. For the world, the flesh, and the devil don't want us to pay attention to spiritual habits. They don't want us to feel uh, lack in the spiritual department, and so they distract us. 
And yet I, I submit that there is also a scheduling aspect that we ought to consider. And this aspect uh, comes to the fore in the Lord's instruction to Israel to offer the daily offerings that we see in this passage. And yet if we think that the uh, scheduling aspect, the practical aspect, is the only aspect or purpose of what is going on here, uh, I think we've missed something because the Lord includes a couple of other purposes that these offerings serve. And so I want us to see these three purposes, the practical purpose, the pedagogical purpose, and the present purpose. The practical purpose, the pedagogical purpose, and the present purpose. Uh, I was at, uh, in Gainesville this week talking to some of my uh, fellow uh, presbyters in the Presbytery of the South so, so for ministers, and we had a talk about alliteration and whether some of our alliteration is forced, and I hope the pedagogical purpose is not a forced alliteration. We first address the practical purpose of uh, the daily offerings. We can see this in the character and the occasion of these offerings. We see this in the description of the material to be used in the character of the offering. After the description of the three sacrifices needed for the consecration of the priest, the Lord instructs Moses in the continuous work of these same priests. We saw three sacrifices that were to be used in the ritual of consecration for the priests at the beginning of chapter 29, and now there are, this is another sacrifice. We begin in verse 38, now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. Two yearling lambs will be offered each day. Each day, and no exception, is uh, brought to four for the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day, as well, will have these two yearling lambs sacrificed and offered. We get this word continually, that this ritual is to have no interruptions. Even the timing of the sacrifice appears in the instructions. These two lambs have uh, ske are scheduled into the day. Look at verse 29. One lamb thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at even. Of the two lambs, the first is to be sacrificed in the morning. And I take this uh, to mean at dawn. Uh, I make this inference because the second one is to be offered at sunset or at the twilight. Dawn and sunset are the two uh, times, sunrise and sunset, are the two times that are scheduled by the Lord for these lambs uh, to be sacrificed. Now, uh, you might think that those two times have some significance, and the ancient pagans saw special significance in these times of day because they were the seams, if you will, between day and night. But that doesn't seem to be the intent uh, that the Lord is using here. Instead, uh, th these times are not special in and of themselves, but they are used to bracket the entire day. We know that the Bible and the Lord uh, have a fondness for using what we call beerisms, the, the use of the two ends of a spectrum to refer to everything in, the, in between. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Uh, and that doesn't mean he's just at the beginning at the end, but he means he's, it's everything in between. And so here, by bracketing the entire day, the entire night with these sacrifices, the Lord is claiming all of time for himself and for his worship. Along with the lamb, we see other material that appears in the sacrifice. Look at verse 40. And with the one lamb, a tenth deal of flour mingled with a fourth part of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth part of a hen of wine for a drink offering. Uh, 
I'll leave it to your investigation what all of those uh, amounts uh, lead up to, but it's quite a considerable amount of uh, material that is being used here uh, for these cakes. A meal and a wine offering uh, that is to be uh, with the lamb, both, both in the morning and the evening sacrifice. Now look at verse 41. In the other land thou shalt offer it even, and shalt do according to the meat offering of the morning, and according to the meat drink offering thereof. So here's the sacrifice. Every morning you have a yearling lamb, uh, you have this meat offering of flour and oil mingled together, and you have the drink offering of the wine. In the evening you have the same three things again. You have these sacrifices, and as we learned from the ritual of uh, the consecration of the priests, uh, there are three different kinds of sacrifices that were made in that uh, ritual. So what is the character of this sacrifice? With all the sacrifices that the Lord uh, gives his people, which kind of sacrifice is this? Is it a sacrifice for sin? Is it, as a is it a sacrifice to make atonement for the people? Is the Lord reminding them every morning and every night that they are sinful people and only can approach him because of sacrifice? Well, that doesn't seem to be the case because if you remember the sin sacrifices, there's always instructions regarding the blood. Is this a sacrifice to sanctify the altar or the priests? Well, if you think about the, the arrangement of the sacrifices we've just gone through at the beginning of chapter 29, uh, it doesn't seem that way because, again, you have something to do with the blood of those sacrifices as well. This does not seem to take on the character of either of these offerings. Instead, it seems to be the middle offering or something akin to the middle offering, a whole burnt offering, a sacrifice of worship and praise. And that seems to be indicated in what you see uh, in verse 41, in the beginning of verse 42. It's an, a, a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a continual burnt offering. If this is the case, then what does it mean? And I think the meaning becomes very clear. What is the purpose of this sacrifice? This sacrifice begins and ends the day for Israel in worship. Every day dawns in the sounds, the smells, and the sights of worship. Israel sees the smoke and hears the fire and the bleats of the animal and smells what the Lord smells. It reminds them that this is the day the Lord has made. They are to rejoice and to be glad in it, as the psalmist will say. That it has been given to, to them by the Lord and everything in it. Every day ends with the sounds and smells and the sights of worship. All the good that that day has brought to them has come to them from the Lord. And if it wasn't that good of a day, all the wrong that happened that day, that at least the Lord has brought them through it and has, is promising his continual presence with them. In bracketing their time this way, uh, these two sacrifices are proclaiming that all Israel's time is hallowed to worship the Lord. That worship is an activity inescapable in the life of the nation in the wilderness. Every morning, the sacrifice. Every evening, the sacrifice. 
Consider this every time you hear of Israel doing something that we think of as ridiculous, rebellious, murmuring against the Lord. It is right after they have seen the sacrifice in the morning or right before they have seen the sacrifice in the evening. It's in the face of those reminders. We have a lot to consider in the Lord's instruction uh, to Israel. In the New Testament, I do not believe we can use this passage to make morning and evening devotions kind of binding upon our conscience. We can say that it is a good idea and even model it on our Lord's Day scheduling, uh, but even sometimes that has its hazards. The Lord's Day is reserved to the Lord, but so also is every day to be lived in His presence. And we promote this reminder. We need this reminder because we are prone to forget, just like Israel forgot in the wilderness. Israel had this sacrifice going on every morning, every night, and still they rebelled. Still there's a Kadesh Barnea. Still there's a, a rebellion against uh, the Lord and refusing to listen to his voice. And yet, uh, these are reminders that are necessary to us. We are to remind ourselves that all time is the Lord through regular times of scripture reading and prayer, acts of worship. Just as the Lord scheduled times of worship for his people, so we also ought to reserve times in our schedule. Now, scheduling is not a moral requirement of the Lord, but it is an application of wisdom. It is something that if you have lived long enough, you know that it is important for us, that the things that matter to us, we schedule time for. Because we have all uh, appreciated and seen how in our lives often the banal and the pressures of the moment crowd out what we think of as more needful and important. How many times have uh, the, the kind of ordinary and common things that we ought to do have crowded out of our schedule the things that we know we ought to be doing or want to do but somehow have forgotten? Add to that the fact that the world, the flesh, and the devil all are conspiring against our spiritual health, are going to try to distract us and make us focus on doing other unimportant things rather than the most important things. Then wisdom suggests that it is going to require us to expend effort to carve out time in our day to spend with the Lord. However we schedule our emotions, however you do that in a wisdom and practical sense, the purpose is to keep the worship of God before our eyes at all times. Why do we do these things? Why do we put them into our lives? Why do we put them into our daily schedules? Because we recognize how important it is to remind ourselves that all of our life is worship, that all of our life is done before the eyes of God. It's not in the kind of, ooh, it's scary because God's watching me kind of way, but in, ooh, our Heavenly Father is looking on us with divine favor that has been earned for us by our elder brother Jesus. And because of that reality, we ought to be obedient and to sanctify ourselves, to make ourselves worthy of that great calling that we have been given. We see the practical purpose, but secondly, we see the pedagogical purpose or the teaching purpose, if you will. You might have thought that the practical purpose was the only purpose of the sanct sacrifice. And yet the Lord adds more. He tells Moses of other aspects of the sacrifice that Israel ought to remember and how these sacrifices remind them about their relationship with God and the purpose of the sacrifice and the tabernacle as a whole. Here we see the purpose in speaking and sanctifying. 
The Lord says something curious in the aftermath of the instructions for the daily sacrifice. So look at verse 42. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the con- congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you and speak and to speak there unto thee. First, he locates the offering at the door of the sanctuary. Now, uh, if you know kind of the arrangement of the furniture within the tabernacle and within the court, the, the bronze altar is not immediately in front of the door. It's probably halfway between the door of the sanctuary and the gate. And yet, it is there in front, it is before uh, the sanctuary in some sense. And it is where the Lord met with Moses, and by that, with his people. It is where he spoke to them. Now, we have very little evidence that uh, the Lord again spoke to the nation as a whole after Sinai and said, this is representative. This is where the Lord will speak to his people through Moses. It's not that the Lord is saying, hey, Moses, you and I are going to have a little conversation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, because you know that every time, or most every time, that the Lord and Moses have a conversation, it is because God is telling Moses, go tell Israel something. This is where God is speaking to his people through Moses. And it is significant, I think, in this verse how this offering is also connected to this voice. The Lord continues with another purpose of meeting with his people. Look at verse 43 and 44. There I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and I will sanctify both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. Now, I think uh, we have to take these two verses together because I think uh, the authorized version gets it wrong a little bit because it makes an assumption in the translation. Uh, In verse 43, you would find, if you were looking at the authorized version, the words, the tabernacle, italicized because they are not in the Hebrew. The Hebrew reads, he, she, or it. And it And I will meet with the children of Israel, and he, she, or it shall be sanctified by my glory. And what baffles people, and why the the translators of the King James Version uh, chose to go this route, is because this uh, this pronoun, actually it's a verb, but it requires a singular subject, and there's no singular antecedent immediately apparent. Uh, Children is the nearest noun, and that is uh, in the, it's a plural And yet, I agree with the translators that are the commentators that see Israel, the children of Israel, being the subject of uh, that verb. That the children of Israel, that the nation shall be sanctified by my glory. You see this this kind of theme that continues in verse 44. The tabernacle of the congregation will be sanctified. The priesthood will be sanctified to minister to him in the priest's office. There's a connection here between God's presence and God's meeting with his people and this sanctifying influence. And they are sanctified, he says, specifically through his glory. You see that there in verse 33. We get the idea. The Lord sanctifies everything around his worship, his worship, his worshipers, and everything by which they worship him. He sanctifies them through his presence and through his glory. 
The Lord mentions two results of meeting with him, that he speaks to us and he sanctifies us. We may even put it slightly differently, that the Lord sanctifies his people through his word as he and his glory meets with his people. The Bible then is not merely the way God speaks to us in the new covenant, it is also the way his glory draws near to us. It is a serious thing when we read God's word because it is not just that the Lord is speaking to us in a sort of uh, over-the-phone kind of thing. Oftentimes we might think of it that way in terms of when we read God's word, you know, God has sent us this letter and we are to read it. God is calling us on the phone, even though he's up in heaven and uh, we're down here on earth. And this is kind of the connecting line between the two of them. No, when you are reading God's word, his glory is being manifest to you. It is the way he has come down to draw near to his people. And in reading his word, in uh, doing these kind of things, we are drawing near truly to him. We are appreciating and able to see his glory. God condescends to present, be present on earth in the sanctuary, but it still takes his people to draw near. Think about the, the way the tabernacle is situated. There's an implication here that God has come down. He is there. His presence has been made known in the tabernacle, and yet he is calling his people to draw near. He's calling them to do something, to, to respond in a proper way. The Bible, the way God speaks to his people, will do you no good if you do not read it or listen to it when it is preached. Prayer will do you no good unless you pray. If we would know the glory of the Lord, we must attend to the means of grace that he has given, the ways that he has given his people to meet with him. We often hear complaints. Why hasn't God spoken to me? Why aren't my prayers answered? Well, maybe it's because you haven't drawn near unto him. It is the way in which he ordains that we should be made holy. Why do we have such a problem with uh, growth in our spiritual lives? If you aren't attending to the means that he has given to you, if you're not drawing near to him, is it any wonder that you are ha have a problem? This is the, the teaching purpose of the sacrifice. This is the teaching purpose of ordering our lives around the worship of God because the worship of God, prayer, reading the Bible, the sacraments, worship, is the way that God is teaching his people how to live with him. We began this all the way back when the Lord began his instructions to Moses. He brought Moses up to, to teach him the Torah, to teach him the teachings, to teach him uh, how Israel is to live covenantally with their God. And what is the first thing he tells Moses to do in way of teaching them how to live covenantally with God is by teaching him how to worship. We see the practical purpose, we see the pedagogical purpose, and finally, we see the present purpose. I come to the end of this chapter and the Lord reminds Moses of the purpose of the daily offerings, but also the purpose of the entire tabernacle. We see twin purposes concerning the Lord dwelling with his people and saving his people. We come full circle to the central concept in the covenant in verse 20, uh, 44, uh, 45, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. 
In the establishment of the covenant with Israel at Sinai, the Lord told Moses, Ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all the people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Lord saved them and made them as particular people. He chose to dwell with them. The presence of the Lord with his people marks them out different as a unique nation among all the other nations of the world. And Moses uses this in his plea with the Lord in the aftermath of the golden calf. He says, Wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are on the face of the earth. He says, he's arguing with the Lord. Lord says, you will go. The tent is now outside the camp. You will lead, my, you will lead this people uh, to Canaan. My angel will go before you. And Moses is arguing, you have to go with us. You have to be back with your people. Because the only way we are different from all the other nations is that you dwell with us. It should not surprise us then when the Lord tells Isaiah about Emmanuel. You see, we come from a New Testament, New Covenant view of Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord shall get, himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we know everything about that. But you have you ever considered, stepped back and kind of divorced yourself from all of our New Covenant uh, ideas and understanding and seeing through Jesus uh, the truth of this to understand what Israel would have understood when they heard this? Because the idea of Emmanuel, God with us, would not have been foreign to them because it's right there in the temple. They just didn't understand how great Emmanuel would be when the person of Jesus came to the world. Because they understood that what defined them as a nation, what defines God's people, not just Israel, but all God's people, is that God dwells with them. This dwelling was a product of and had a reminding aspect as well. Verse 46, And they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell with them. I am the Lord their God. You have a, a reminding aspect and a result aspect. They will know that I am the Lord their God because I am dwelling with them. They will know that I am the Lord their God because I am dwelling with them and that has brought them out of the land of Egypt. I will be, it, my presence with them will always remind them that I brought them from slavery. And the reason my presence with them will remind them of that is because the very reason I saved them was for this purpose, to dwell with them. In the very establishment of the covenant, again in Exodus 19, the Lord says to Moses, you, or to Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bear you on, on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Don't miss that last part. I saved you. I delivered you. I rescued you from Egypt in order to bring you to me. You know that that statement again begins the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Hear, O Israel. Uh, the Lord, I am the Lord your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The history of Israel, their slavery in Egypt, and God's powerful, speedy salvation reminds them of their identity and the purpose for which they are saved. For the deliverance of Israel from Egypt was not an end of itself. God's grant of freedom to his people is not so that they can, that because freedom is abstractly good. 
It's one of the great mistakes that we hear within our own culture, this veneration of freedom as the highest good or the greatest gift or uh, the right of every human being. God sets his people free, but he expects them to do something with their freedom. That that freedom means something to them. That freedom delivered them in order for them to dwell in the presence of God. Jesus sets his people free just like God set his people free in the Old Testament in order that they might have a relationship with him. My friend, can you say this about yourself, that the Lord is your God? Or can the Lord say this about you, that he says about Israel at the end of verse 46, I am the Lord, their God. And this is no casual question. In it, we find the truth about our birth. We are not his people from birth. Indeed, we are far from him. Our evil, our sin, the bad things we do or think or say, even the bad things that we want separate us from God and make us deserving of hell. But God sent Jesus to save. Jesus is God made man who delivered us from a worse slavery than Egypt. He delivers us by living a perfect life. He delivers us by dying upon the cross, offering the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath against us for our sin. He does it by rising from the dead on the third day to prove the full acceptance of that sacrifice, to show that we have life, a home in heaven through him. And Jesus offers himself to you today. The question is, will you receive him? Do you believe that what he did, he did for you? Do you repent of your sin and of your evil and turn from it to do good? Christian, what is the purpose of your salvation? A lot of people have pondered about that. And a lot of different uh, answers have been uh, offered for uh, this question. And some of them are quite good. But I think that this passage reminds us of the answer that the Lord gives that is perhaps the most important. Why did Jesus save you? Or why did Jesus save anybody? He saved us so that we might dwell with him. He saved us so that he might meet with us, that we might meet with him, that we might live together, that we might live in the presence of God forever. And for that reason, I suggest to you that spending time with the Lord is not an ex optional extra of the Christian life. In fact, it is the heart of the Christian life. That worship is not some ancillary thing that we do on a Sunday. It is the very purpose for which God rescued us out of a slavery worse than Egypt. I suggest that if you skimp on this duty of spending time with God, of, of worshiping Him, that no other service or evangelism or charitable act or obedience will be able to make up for the deficit. Do you not hear this truth in Jesus' rebuke to Martha? Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. We like talking about this and talking about who's a Mary and who's a Martha in our own churches. And we like to, uh, you know, kid around, I guess, with that. But something that Jesus is saying here is deadly serious. He's saying, Martha, you're doing a lot of good things. 
but you missed out on the most important thing. One thing is needful, and Mary figured it out. One thing, one blessing can never be taken away from God's people. And Jesus tells us it's that it's the most important one. Does this mean that we can ignore obedience in favor of presence? Can we just be Mary's and not, uh, not do anything, not live lives of service, not try to give ourselves to obedience and holiness? I would ask you, have you not read the 15th Psalm? Lord, who shall abide? Who shall dwell in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. David continues throughout the psalm to mention the character of those who dwell with the Lord because there's a symbiotic relationship here that as we dwell with God, he makes us these people. And as we make ourselves and work on ourselves in this way, uh, we dwell in his presence. Is the concept of synergism. That he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. The character is the one that we have as those who Christ saves. He has put this identity and character within us, but it is the character that the Holy Spirit is working in us, and it is the character that we are to devote ourselves to forming as we live in the presence of our God. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we pray that you would increase our desire for your presence. May we want you more. May we find in you and see in you our best and highest joy. And in that, be motivated to separate time to spend with you, to draw near to you through word and prayer. Make us more like Jesus, for we pray this in his name. Amen.